One of the problems of having opponents, enemies, is that they hardly ever are happy. Doesn't matter what you do, they're unhappy. You see that at the end of Matthew chapter 11, verse 18. John came, said Jesus, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You can't win. You're abstemious like John, and so you are a wowser. You're a drinker like Jesus, and so you're a drunkard. It doesn't matter which way you go, your enemies will find fault. For if you want to look for fault, well, you'll find it. That's always the case, even with the innocent. They don't see the arrogance of judgment that they're making. For instead of being judged by the word of God, they want to judge the word of God. Instead of sitting under God's judgment, they want God to sit under their judgment. Instead of seeing themselves made in the image of God, they want to make God in their own image. Uh, I read uh, a British rabbi, Dr. Jonathan Romaine, saying, I cannot conceive of a God who, well, you don't need the rest of the sentence, whatever he puts after that sentence is him making up God. It's him saying, God, you cannot be, because if you are that, then you are not God. So guess who's making God? Get who's defining God, describing God, establishing what God is. He is making up God as he wants God to be. He is making God instead of being made by God. He is making God in his own image instead of being made in God's image. Uh, you'll often hear people say a sentence like that. When I think of God, God is, well, no, God is not just because you think it. That is a terrible arrogance. You are because God thinks it, but God isn't because you think it. Uh, get, the, get the place right. We have a tendency to want to sit on the bench and judge God, when in fact God is sitting on the bench judging us. And you must recognise which way you're looking. Don't confuse a telescope with a microscope. There's a, there's a difference in what you're trying to do here. Which end of the telescope are you going to look in? You've got to look the right end of the telescope. I know when little boys get a set of binoculars or a telescope, they always look down the wrong end to see what it's like. But you've got to see what you're trying to do in the judgments you're making. We are on the slide being looked at down the microscope. We are not looking down the microscope at God on the slide. It's important to understand God. If you're going to do so, then you've got to let God define God, describe God. He can't define himself, actually, because there's only one, and you can never define a singular. But he is the one who will tell us what he is like, what his values are, his plans, his purposes, his attitudes. We've got to listen to God rather than tell God. People sat in judgment over Jesus, but all through the gospel as they sit in judgment over Jesus, they reveal that they do not understand him because instead of listening to him, they're making judgments on him, rejecting him, finding fault with everything he did. And so 
John they won't have for one reason and Jesus for the exact opposite reason. The preacher of God's word cannot win with his opponents. So Jesus turns to the cities of judgment, the cities that have made judgments about him, but they themselves are going to face the judgment because of him. The cities were where his works were done, the Galilean cities around the the northern edges of the Sea of Galilee, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. Here were the centres of his work. He was, born in, he was born in Bethlehem, of course. He was raised in Nazareth. But his ministry didn't centre on Nazareth. It came down to Capernaum, down where the fishermen were on the Sea of Galilee. And that's where his great works, that was the centre of his ministry throughout Galilee. It's where he called his disciples, where he taught the crowds, where he did so many amazing and extraordinary miracles that people came from all over Palestine, the area that we see on the map there, from everywhere over there and further afield. Look back just a few chapters with me to the end of chapter 4. End of chapter 4, you'll find it on page 976. Verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So famous were his deeds, but they all happened up in Galilee. And the crowds came to Galilee and brought the sick to Galilee, for there were his great miracles. But these cities in which he had done such incredible works showed no signs of repentance. That, of course, was his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is hand. It's Matthew chapter 4. It's the same message as John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, but Matthew 4 verse 17, when Jesus starts preaching, that's his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What he wants people to do is to repent, to stop what they're doing, to turn around, have a a change of mind that will be seen in the way they now live a different way. That's his message. But while they're enjoying the benefits of the coming of the kingdom, the healings, the exorcisms, the miracles, they don't repent. They don't prepare themselves for the coming of the kingdom. They don't prepare themselves for the coming of the king. They don't have a change of mind that will lead to a change in life, they don't stop their rebellion and accept the king's rule over them. And in this lack of repentance, Jesus makes the stark and in fact insulting contrast with the cities of Tyre and Sidon. And even in verse 23, back in our chapter here, chapter 11, even in verse 23, a comparison, a contrast with Sodom. Tyre and Sire were Phoenician trading cities on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. At times, fabulously wealthy, given to materialism, but their religion was the terrible religion of the Baal worshippers. Sodom was that dreadful city down near the Dead Sea. Uh, They were consumed by the wrath of God in a single day, presumably some geological catastrophe or earthquake 
that would take place down there in the Rift Valley, an area of great geological instability. But God used it to bring judgment on Sodom so that the judgment that fell upon them was a byword of God's judgment upon a people. If it had seen Jesus' works, it would have repented and would still be there today, says Jesus. If Tyre and Sidon had seen the great works done in Capernaum and the like, why, they would have repented. It's not that the destruction of Sodom was the end of its judgment, because notice verse 27, oh no, verse 24 rather, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. That is, Sodom has been judged by being condemned and destroyed back then in the times of Abraham, but now it still faces judgment ahead. What a contrast it is between the Galilean cities of Jesus' ministries and these other cities. It's more than a contrast, it's an insult for these other cities were the cities of the pagans. And yet they would bear less judgment than the Jewish cities. I mean, the Old Testament prophets were very clear in their denunciation of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon stood as the exemplars of Baal worship, of evil. Now, you and I have uh, overwhelmed by political correctness in this society and we think, well, all religions are just different ways to God. We don't, of course, but you're taught that everywhere you go. And all religions are harmless and they're all much the same. They all believe the same things. The Baal worshippers sacrificed children to the gods. The Baal worshippers ran the brothel at the temple because by having sex with the sacred prostitutes you would force the gods, the Baals, to give fertility to your crops and to your family. The degeneracy of their religion knew no end. It was an appalling religion and that was Tyre, that was Sidon and it's going to be more tolerable for them on the day of judgment than the Jews of Galilee than the Israelites of Galilee? To say that they would repent would seem unlikely, but yet they would have repented if they'd seen the miracles of Jesus, the works of Jesus, while the Galilean Jewish city of Capernaum, why, it's like Sodom. And of course, Sodom was the very byword of pagan godlessness. You can't get much more godless than Sodom. These verses raise the issue of differential judgment, whether different people will suffer different judgment in the day of judgment. In one sense, hell is hell. And there's no encouragement to think there are lesser and greater judgments in the Bible. But in this passage, is that the case? Well, it's a passage of rhetoric. Jesus is driving home the point of the horror of the Jewish rejection of the Messiah by contrasting them with the worst of all paganisms. How far is this a matter of rhetoric and how much is this a description of reality? We need to have as a question mark, we don't know the answer, but we need to acknowledge rhetoric as part of Jesus' method. He said, for example, unless you hate your mother, brother, father, sister, you cannot be my disciple. He didn't actually mean you to hate them. If you remember, he teaches you to love even your enemies. So how come you to hate your mother? Although, no, I won't go down there. So 
he doesn't mean it in a literal sense. He uses rhetorical flourish. He uses the overstatement to catch your attention. Well, this would catch their attention <laughs> to say that there's more chance for Sodom than for you in Capernaum. That would catch their attention all right. Is he meaning that there are differences in judgment on the day of... Well, he could. For God is a just God who will take everything into account when he judges the world... And those who are given much, we're taught, much will be required, which by definition then means that those with less, less is required. It's a big subject about what are those who have never heard the gospel and do they have a chance for salvation and the like. But let me give you a quick one-sentence summary and some other day we'll talk about it, although I think you'll find it on philipjensen.com where we've discussed it at greater length. But the one sentence summary that I've come up with is that we will be judged by what we do with what we can know. You can't be held responsible for that which you cannot possibly know. But if you can know it, ignorance is no excuse of the law. If you can know it, ignorance is no excuse. I got pulled over by the police the other day, first time I've ever been pulled over by the police. I was driving up Bathurst Street and I did a funny turn and there was a policeman right behind me, a police car right behind me. I saw him right behind me but I thought what I did was legal and he thought what I did was illegal. So he pulled me over and, and uh, got my licence and was all ready to book me and I reasoned with him that what I did was completely legal and he reasoned with me that what I did was completely illegal. Now. It's not a question of what I think or what I don't think, is it? It's a question of, was it legal or not? That's the question. Well, on the grounds of my unblemished driving record, he gave me back the licence and told me it was illegal. And since then, I haven't done it again. Although I did check out the RTA website and it doesn't say it's illegal, but that doesn't mean it's not illegal. Ignorance of the law is no excuse of the law if the law is public. And the law is public. It's the duty of the citizen to know. So you are judged by not what you know, but by what you can know. Or rather, what you do with what you can know. Now, that's not a cop-out. For the people of Tyre, the people of Sidon, the people of Sodom could have known about God. For God declares himself in creation. And they should have known about God because they were living with the neighbours of God's people. Lot was living in the family in the city of Sodom, but they wouldn't listen to him. And the people of Tyre and Sidon were just living around the corner from the Jews and they wouldn't listen to them. And so they are still responsible because of what they could have known. But the Aborigines in Australia... Well, they couldn't know about the Jews and they certainly couldn't know about Jesus till white fellows came here. When they did come here, they embraced the gospel of Jesus in great numbers and even today there are more Christians per head of population in the Aborigines than there are in the white community around about us, which is an interesting aspect of our life in Australia most people don't take on board. However, they always knew the God of creation and it was always their responsible the responsibility to respond appropriately to the Creator. Well, it's a big topic, put it on one side, but you see the verse here has possible implications on that subject, so I move on. For understanding Jesus comes from revelation, not discovery. 
There's all manner of ways in which you can come to know things. Some things like mathematics, you come to know by thinking about it, which is why some of us don't know very much mathematics. Just too much like thinking. Some things like biology or history or physics, you come not by thinking about things, but by investigating things. Uh, thoughtfully, but by investigating, empiricism, testing, seeking the evidence. But some things come from revelation, especially things about people. That is, it's only as people tell you about themselves that you can possibly know them. So how do we come to understand Jesus? It's not by just sitting down and thinking about him, nor is it by running any kind of evidential in test or inquiry. It's by revelation. It's by listening to what he has to say. So look at this wonderful passage, verses 25 to 30. It's almost like John's Gospel plonked in the middle of Matthew's Gospel. It's one of the most wonderful passages in Matthew's Gospel. It's a beautiful description of the Father and the Son, the eternal relationship within the triune God. But it goes on to give us a beautiful description of the relationship between God's Son and us. The Son of God has a unique position of knowledge of his Father. Verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You can fool all the people some of the time and some of the people all of the time, but you can never fool your children. That's just one of the characteristics of life, isn't it? One of the most horrible things about being a parent is seeing your children mimicking you, not intentionally, unintentionally mimicking you, because they nearly always mimic the worst bits, don't they? The very bit that you are embarrassed about is the bit that they pick up on the quickest. And while you may think you are telling them all kinds of things, they know you, they live with you, they understand you like... Nobody else really understands you. That's just the character of children. God the Son, God the Father share all things and know all things about each other. And God the Father has given all things to the Son and no one knows the Father like the Son and no one knows the Son like the Father. Jesus as God's Son, God's Son incarnate, was like no other human because Jesus knew God. He knew him as a son knows his Father. And all the more so because his father had entrusted all things to him. In John's Gospel, we read that famous verse. Jesus said to, to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. See how close that parallels to what is being said here in verse 27 of chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel. There is only one eternal son of God. And to him and him only have all things been given. And he is the one and the only one who knows the Father and he is the one and only way to the Father. You can't bypass Jesus and reach God the Father. Notice what God's Son, Jesus, says of the Father's gracious will in verses 25-26. Back up verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. See, the Father is the Lord, the Master, the owner of heaven and earth. He made the universe and it's his universe. He owns it, he rules it as his own. And we, humans, 
We are part of that universe. He made us. He owns us. He rules over us. We are his creatures. Even when we're rebellious against him, ignore him and turn our back on him, it makes no difference. We are his. His lordship goes therefore beyond Israel and the Jews. He wasn't just the God of Israel. He was the God of Tyre. He was the God of Sidon. He was the God of Sodom. He is the God of Sydney. We, like the Sodomites of old, may want to have nothing to do with him as we pursue our own morality and our own immorality. But that doesn't change the reality that he is the Lord to whom one day we're going to have to give account. We must give account for the lives that he has given to us. And as the Lord of heaven and earth, in his gracious generosity, he has hidden certain things from certain people. This is one of the great privileges of knowledge, that you can choose to be as private with it or as public with it as you wish to be, as to whether you give out information or whether you don't give out information. I can choose to tell you about myself or I can choose to keep it to myself. You know, I've just come back from a couple of weeks of holiday and I can choose to tell you how many fish I caught or I can choose not to tell you about how many fish I didn't catch. It's my information to do with as I please, to tell the people I want to tell and not tell the people I don't want to tell. I'm the Lord of my information. I can reveal it to whomever I wish and I can keep it from whomever I wish. I can choose to tell it to my family and to keep it from you or I can tell it to you and keep it from my family. It's my information to do as I please. If I'm in the boasting mood, I'll tell you, not my family, because they know me and will see through my boast more quickly than you will. Now, nowhere is this more so than with the information about myself or about yourself. We can choose to offer our names and our conversation with people to get to know them and to let them get to know us, or we can choose to remain silent not give our names and avoid any relationship with the other person. That's our choice. But if you want to have friends, you've got to talk about yourself to people. How else will they know you? And you've got to listen to the other person talk about themselves. How else will you know them? God, in his gracious wisdom, has revealed himself to us. He didn't have to but he has chosen of his own will to do so. Many of the New Age religions, many of the Eastern mystic religions, do not see God as somebody who reveals himself, but sees God as the unknowable, as the silent, as the one that you need to find. You need to go on a discovery to find out who, where, what. But no, the God of the Bible speaks and he declares himself, reveals himself, because he wants to enter into a relationship with his creatures, his human creatures in particular, that is. But notice to whom he has chosen to hide himself and to whom he has chosen to reveal himself. It's not the wise and understanding he's revealed himself to, but the little children. The old spiritual religion went... If religion was a thing that money could buy, the rich would live and the poor would die. 
without being as uh, rhyming as well as that, I would put it similarly, if religion was a thing that clever could find, the smart would live and the dim would, dumb would die. But that's not how God is. God's not peopling heaven with clever people. It's the little children because they are the ones who trust. That's the characteristic of a child. They trust you. That's the appalling, terrible thing of misleading children because it's easy to mislead children because they trust you. The older we get, the more cynical we become. That's why children have lots of friends and that's why adults find it so hard to make friends. Because the person who doubts everybody and everything knows nothing and has no friends. Because the only way in which you can know things is by trusting. The only way in which you can know people is by trusting. The more we get hurt over life, the less confidence we have to trust and the fewer friends we have. God is no man's debtor. He's not going to be answerable to human cleverness and he's not going to be judged by our academic elite. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of, this, of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That's an extraordinary verse. Can I encourage you to just take a note, write it down, don't mark our cathedral Bibles, write down some 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 21, that's a verse to sit and ponder for a while, to think about, because it really is saying an extraordinary thing. God in his wisdom chose not to be known by human wisdom. He could have, he could have said here's some tantalising pieces of evidence, now whoever's clever enough to work it out, you'll be mine, but he doesn't. He chooses not to be revealed to human wisdom because he's not answerable to human wisdom. What he does is he preaches the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, which to the wise of this age is foolish, and to those who are looking for miracles is stupid. The people of Capernaum, they saw the miracles, but they weren't saved. The wise of Corinth and Athens, they thought about the great thoughts, but they weren't saved. But the children who put their trust in God will know him as their father. Now, that's not to say Christians are stupid. It's got nothing to do with it, really. But that God is not answerable to our cleverness, which is very important to understand, because the arrogance of clever people is that they always expect God to fit into their categories of thought and their experiments of mind. However, God's choice of revealing himself was to do so through his son, and for his son's choice in revealing himself to people to be the father's way of revealing himself. So we see in verse 27, all things have been given to the son. The father is the Lord of heaven and earth, and in his gracious wisdom he's chosen to give all things to his son. Just to leap ahead for a moment, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, the last image we have of Jesus in chapter 28 after the resurrection is when he's gathered with his 11 disciples and he commissions them to go into the world to make disciples of all nations. You remember that great passage? 
Do you remember how it's introduced? And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The Lord of heaven and earth has given all authority in heaven and earth to his risen Son, Jesus Christ. No man comes to the Father except through him, and there's no other name given amongst men by which we must be saved. And so he says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone that the Son chooses to reveal himself to. For it is the sovereign right of the Son of God to pass this knowledge of God on to whomever he pleases. And so, given that case, he sends his disciples to all nations to make God known. And the Great Commission clearly is his will. And he makes him known by preaching the foolishness of the cross. But notice it's also saying anyone, whomever, wherever, whenever, Christ chooses to make himself known, to make the Father known. For as you come to know Christ as Lord, so you come to know God as your Father. For that is what Christ sent his Spirit into the world to go do, that through the Gospel you might acknowledge Jesus as Lord and God as your Father. It's not the clever, it's not the rich, it's not the important, it's not the rulers who sit in arrogant judgment over Jesus, it's not the TV commentators, but it's those who trust him and his word. For if you remember, faith comes from hearing the word of God. And so we have Jesus' invitation at the end of this chapter. Two invitations that really are the same. Come unto me and take my yoke upon you. Come to me. It's, it's not the great and mighty, the self-sufficient, but come to me. Like for many, life for many people, especially the little people of this earth, is hard, is difficult, is wearisome, is burdensome. It's an uphill battle with work and with study, with feeding the kids and paying the rent, with sickness and with death and with sin and the battles of temptation and Satan. Being a Christian is not about satisfying idle curiosity. It's not about satisfying intellectual puzzles of our age. It's not about appeasing the judgments of the academy. Being a Christian is about living for God in a fallen, sinful world. It's about loving him. It's about serving his people and serving him with the gifts that he has given to us. But even more significant in being a Christian is the challenge here to come to me. The invitation is not to come to my father, though that's where he will take you. But it's, if you want rest, if you want the Sabbath rest, come to me, says Jesus. It's a incredible claim that Jesus says to all mankind that he will give you rest. But when you come to Jesus, you've got to come and take his yoke upon you. You cannot come to the Lord of glory as an equal. He may be equally human, but he's the risen son of man. He's the eternal son of God. He is the one to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given. You can't come to him just as an equal. You come to him as your Lord and place yourself in his service under his yoke and learn from him, being taught and educated by him. But there's some more great news there, isn't there? For that yoke is so wonderfully comfortable, it's easy and light, because he himself is gentle and lowly in heart. What a master to have. Somebody who will train us and teach us and lead us and educate us and care for us 
in a way that is easy, that will give us rest for our souls. What, friends? How's life with you? Weary? (laughs) Tired? The end of the year. That's enough to make everybody tired, isn't it? Burdened by things of life? Don't be like the opponents of Jesus, criticising everything and anything and putting yourself on the high seat of the bench. And don't be like the Galileans, refusing to repent, but come to him. Take, Take his yoke upon yourself, for in Jesus you'll find God as your father and the most gentle, loving Lord that has ever walked this earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death for us and resurrection, and that you have given all authority to him that he now rules the world and calls people from every tribe and nation into his kingdom. We pray, Father, that each one of us here might know Jesus as our Lord, coming to him and taking his yoke upon ourselves and under his lordship know you as our Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.